for curious minds. And here's your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Tales from Beyond Belief, An Ordinary Person's Extraordinary Journey into the Unknown, Joseph Sinkovic, How to Kiss the Universe, an inspirational, spiritual, and metaphysical Narrative about human origin, essence, and destiny. And Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com. And she's a tarot reader evidential medium and healer and you can find her at tarotbyginger.com and now without further ado our guest for today is gary wayne and if you're a regular listener to this podcast you will know who he is he is the author of the genesis 6 conspiracy and he is currently working on part two of that book which is really hard to believe considering how large volume one is thanks for coming on today well thank you for inviting me and uh, for people who might be familiar with my book this is a sequel it's called the genesis six conspiracy part two how understanding prehistory and giants helps define end time prophecy so this one the book is a little bit more targeted at the christian audience who is just absolutely starving for more information that they're not being taught in the churches uh, because they don't teach prehistory in context with the mm-hmm. rest of the Bible, and they don't teach prophecy. And they're not even taught that in seminary school, schools. They're kind of taught not to do it. That, I would say taught's probably not the right word. Directed not to teach a lot about prehistory and absolutely stay away from prophecy. So it is a shorter book than the first book, as I've promised people. I'm hoping it'll be out you know, in the next few months, because uh, the... We're kind of a go with the with the publisher on it, so it's just a matter of the final details and how fast we can get through the editing process and cover design and all that other stuff that sort of goes along with it. And so I will be uh, working on taking on pre-ordering. So I haven't quite figured it out yet. I want to get something attached to my website to pre-order. I want mm-hmm. something on my timeline with an email where I can you know catalog a list and get back to people when it's out so that we can. Uh, take care of that order. I won't be asking for money up advance, just the information like an email and I'll, I'll contact people at that point in time. So yeah, pretty excited about that. And, uh, it is a little bit shorter than the first book. It's still over 600 pages. There's still 85 chapters. And the scary part is, is I didn't get everything in it. So <laughs> there may, there may be another one. I, I've, I've got another book I'm 300 pages into, but, there are things in there that uh, you just, I didn't want to get too far down rabbit trails. I wanted to say, mm-hmm. you know, sort of on track. So I have a book in mind that I was going to do perhaps down the road uh, that would be leaving out, again, dealing with parts that I haven't dealt with. Uh, so this whole understanding about giants and different kinds of giants mm-hmm. and different kinds of Nephilim creation, that sort of has my interest up in it. I've got several 
you know, documents that I provide people right now, but to get it a little bit more detailed and connected, uh, I think might be interesting. But I thought, and I actually thought maybe I'd get it in this book, but then it just became, because I, I, I'm just that way. I just kind of keep digging and digging and finding mm-hmm. more and more stuff, and I keep adding. And at some point in time, if you make it too big, people don't want to read the whole book. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that people didn't read all of the first book, but I know it took them months to read it. So <laughs> it'll be a little bit less time to read this one. <laughs> so, you know, why is it, two questions, why is the prehistory and prophecy not taught to regular people or even, you know, priests and monastics? And, you mentioned like where you're, you know, you're, you're digging into these subjects. Where is it that you're digging into? Is it just the Bible or is it also other sources? Yeah, good question. So the first question, as I understood it, is, is why don't they teach it? Yeah. And, you know, up to, let's say, 150 years, maybe 200 at the outside, it was common to teach all about the prehistory and what was in the Bible and to try and understand and interpret uh, the end-time prophecy. Uh, but in the last couple of hundred years, that has sort of whittled away to now I have ministers getting hold of me, can you send me information on this, because I think I know what you're talking about from reading the Bible, but we weren't taught this, so I would like to dig into it in a way that makes more sense. I get a lot of ministers saying, it's about time people like yourself are taking on this because it's true. We're not taught this stuff, and it's important. And for me, it's just absolutely crazy that you wouldn't teach the full context of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So everything, I mean, it's one thing to say, let's just teach the principles of the Bible. That's good. All religions have principles, and uh, and the biblical ones are, are very, very good. But they're taught, should be taught in a way from what the history says as to why we have those principles and to where we're going as to why those principles are important. So if you don't teach the Bible in context, you're leaving unanswered questions for people that will drive wedges into their faith, or they'll hear something that's a half-truth and say, oh, I didn't know that, and they didn't get all the information because that's part of the game is, is how do you sort of mislead people by not, you know, close, you know, including all of the facts that you might have. So it, it's it's really sad that the, the churches don't do that more. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why they rationalize it is that you have prehistory, which doesn't necessarily always line up with secular teachings, so you're going really against the flow on much of it, even though secular history has a lot they can't account for, and anything that doesn't fit, they throw it off to the side as a new part, <laughs> and that's accounted for um, <laughs> artifact, and just ignore it, uh, because they have a narrative, and they've lost that scientific objective approach to consider all, idea, all ideas and have sort of strong debate going on all the time, which leads them to hopefully a clearer understanding. They just want a preconceived conclusion and now they just want to feed everything into that and fund only things that sort of go with that sort of thought. I would I would hope that both the church and, and science would get back to 
we're trying to figure things out here. Let's let's get a good understanding going. So I think that's one of the reasons they don't want to go upstream. And then they have to deal with a bunch of things that they just don't want to deal with, right? Especially yeah. in the age. I mean, if you're talking about giants, they don't want to talk about giants. And they don't want to talk about how they might have been created. And they don't want to talk about uh, what the aftermath of that is. And from the secular side, they don't want... The information out there that the elite class, which is the educated class throughout history, changed a little bit in the West in the last couple of hundred years, but essentially the educated class, they don't want the rest of the people to know that they've been in basically a feudal system all of our history through these bloodlines who are, you know, created a little bit differently than what we are, to say, to say the least. So you have that going on. And then also, uh, you know, if that's not thin enough ice, to begin with, then you have this prophecy side that mm-hmm. it's got a graveyard full of people who have predicted things that haven't happened and um, and get things wrong. So, but that doesn't mean you ought, you ought not to teach both. I mean, you ought to teach the context of what the history was and and how our belief system came about, and you ought to teach what it says about prophecy. And don't get out there on ledges as to saying, um, you know, things like this is going to happen on a specific date. Just say, here's here's the directional story. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen because there's a set time, but not even the sun knows, as we're taught in the Bible, that here's the events and the signs for the season and the generation. But even then, don't get out on a limb and get yourself ahead of biblical chronology because you lose all of your credibility so they could teach it in that way but because they haven't been taught it in seminary schools it really makes it difficult and the hierarchy disciplines people who teach outside the standard curriculum so they've turned into a sort of a here's the narrative here's the conclusion you don't get outside of that doesn't matter what the bible says so they're getting further kind of away from the bible not that the principles aren't good it's just that it's the context and the full understanding so it's a bit like science that way and that that ought not to be the case so when uh, people are pushing back on that they tend to say hey you know what? i don't want to go against the whole flow and and where it began with Things not being taught in the seminary schools about prehistory and prophecy, it begins with the invasion of what I would call Gnostic or polytheist moles into the church. And uh, I talk about that all throughout the first book in terms of these groups and organizations, but they have an interpretive approach. That's the polytheist way of doing things, the standard Christian way is a literalist approach that was handed down from the time of Jesus through the Judeans and into the early church, the Jerusalem church, and even the early Roman church, and even up to a couple hundred years was straight literalist. And then you get this interpretive approach, and that's a marker or a red flag. That is an indication that there's another belief system entering in. And so what they're doing is is they're, they're creating a scenario that Christians don't have all of the answers that they're looking for, and the ministers refused or can't answer them. And then that drives in a wedge belief and weakens your belief and opens them up to be led into other belief systems. 
So I look at it from a strategic perspective, um, and there's been this ongoing battle in the West, and you could say throughout our history, but particularly in the West as we understand it, probably best understood, even though people don't know the full context of it, and, I, and again, in the first book I'll cover that off, but you have the rise of the Gnostic religions after Christianity has been accepted and homogenized with some polytheism in it at the time of Constantine to become the state empire and then becomes the Western religion for the most part. But in the Middle Ages, you have a rise of the Manichaean, the Gnostic, the Bogomil, all these different names that are part of that greater Gnostic uh, branch uh, religion of, of, you know, essentially centered in the Middle East and in, in Greece and in Rome and including um, Sol Invictus and Mithraism. All of them are starting to rise again, um, and not only from outside the church, but also within the church, within the monastic orders, which are not or Gnostic organizational mm -hmm. structures, just like Buddhism is that monasticism, the Essenes was that monasticism, and they kind of work within the church, but not totally for the church. And, mm -hmm. and, the, and a lot of the polytheists fold themselves into those organizations but in the in the middle ages you had the albigensians and the cathars who rose to significant power and they were funded by the religions that had moved to bulgaria and the east uh, to get away from the catholic persecution and they started these branch operations up that were being funded by the noble elite and they get so powerful that the catholic church says we got to we got to take care of this, and I'm not for any uh, reason or for uh, I am not defending what the Catholic Church did because it doesn't matter. You don't turn into what you say you're trying to destroy. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But there was this this threshold point where it was thought that it was an existential situation that either one primary religion was going to completely take over or not. And so the Catholic Church started the Elpigensian Crusade, and it was to wipe out polytheism out of, uh, out, of, out of Europe again. And you can't force people to worship what you believe. You just, it just doesn't work. People have to choose to do it. So that's, you know, right out of the gate, the whole principle is wrong to, to do that kind of thing. So... This is a war that's been going on all the time, and as I talk about throughout in, in the first book and, and again in the second book, is, is the polytheist religion, the interpretive religion with the pantheon of the gods, is the, is the organizations and the people that are moving towards a globalist society. That's their end goal. Always has been, and with a universal <coughs> religion, but one primary religion, but in this case, the polytheist religion. And, uh, you know, run by humankind, it doesn't matter which side would win, it would turn into a totalitarian state. Um, so, it, you know, having this sort of play out, having a religion that is likely coming according to prophecy that's going to be imposed on everybody mm -hmm. is going to lead to genocide. Mm. Terrible. So, the other question was, where do you get all of your information from? Is it strictly just the Bible? Or do you dig into, you know, scriptures that were not published in the Bible, not included? Or do you just dig into 
archaeology things? Like, like where is this all coming from? How do you yes, do sir, this? All, all of the above. So, you know, uh, when I was young, I was a mythology buff, and I was a history buff. And then I got into end-time prophecy, and that sort of led me back to... Uh, to God, and my research was to say, okay, I need to verify what this prophecy stuff is all about because it's scaring the socks off of me, so I better <laughs> understand it. And I wanted to make sure that people weren't putting out stuff that wasn't true because that's uh-huh. quite common. So I learned that, but on my way to doing that research, you know, I get to Genesis 6 and it's got giants in there. <laughs> And I'm going, I don't want anything to do with that. That's crazy stuff. That's not what I'm here to do. But it keeps coming up, and you've got the angelic order. So that sort of led me into saying, you know what? I want to see whether or not I can publish some books. I've got about 12 or 15 books I I want to get done if I have enough time to do it. And so I want to see whether or not I can get published first and whether or not I can tell a story. And then will people buy the book, and will, will they think it's garbage or... Well, I think it's 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 interesting and fascinating and something to consider. So I thought I'd write a short book, <laughs> and I wrote the first ten chapters very very quickly, and then I decided, well, you know what? I know all of this lines up through my other interests that there's talk is talked about in all cultures all around the world, both the prehistory and the prophecy side, mm-hmm. and so I started adding in some of that. Then it c- occurred to me. It's kind of meaningless for Christians or people who don't understand other cultures if they don't understand that religion, because the culture and the mythology or the history, depending on how you want to perceive that, comes out of the religion. It's all part of the mm-hmm. same mix. So then I had to learn about that. So, you know, I had to read uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, I had to read the Mormon book, I had to read uh, the Popol Vuh, all those Gnostic scriptures that you're talking about, ones that maybe some may be considered could have been in the canon mm-hmm. or not. I had to learn all about that so I could uh, understand it and then back up what some of that history that the other cultures have and make sense out of that within the religion of that particular group of people. And then that led me to the mystery schools, because that's part of that ancient culture of the education, which mm-hmm. sort of led me to the creation of the secret societies, which led me down 10 years of research. And I thought maybe I may never come up out of that because <laughs> it's just so vast and huge that you could just go on forever on some of this kind of research. And so then I thought, well, you have to have something tangible to go with this. So where's the archaeology? So then you have to say, OK, I don't need like you know, a hundred pages of, or two hundred pages of archaeological references, but you have to be able to put some images in some people's heads in terms of this stuff is on reliefs, there's skulls, there's Mm -hmm. these kinds of things, so that you have, uh, you know, some credibility to some of the things that you're saying, because (coughs) if you're not familiar with the topic, it becomes rather, oh boy, what's this guy talking about, right? right? So. Uh, so yeah, all of the above, and so, but in this book, the second book I'm doing is is not only do I I want to stay a little bit closer to the Bible, mm-hmm. um, but to define it properly, even for Christians, you need something else that goes in it. So again, I will go into like the Ugaritic texts for some, for example. And I'm going to show those parallels that are using the same root Semitic words 
that are in the Bible for the same kinds of people and events. I will go into the execration texts of the Egyptians and give their descriptions and their names for the same types of peoples and events. So I will do some of that. I will cite the reliefs to go look up if you want that. We'll, I don't know whether the price point of the book will permit the pictures to go in there. You can see the depictions of these if they want. So, uh, yeah, it's all of that, and it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of detailed research and trying to figure out, okay, I just came across something. Now, is that fitting directionally or isn't mm -hmm. it? And if it's not, why not? And have, have I just misunderstood what what the information is or what else can I find that's around that topic to see whether I can get some sort of consistency? Because what I find is there's consistency throughout the history. There's consistency throughout the prophecies. Uh, but there's always that monotheist lens or that polytheist lens that you're looking through and a secular lens as well. Mm. Is it good to try to look through all those different lenses to come up with a proper conclusion, or is it better just to look through the monotheistic one? Um, I think it's good to look through all of them. Um, as a Christian, uh, make sure that you're very sound in your faith before you do. Mm -hmm. um, and don't go in with preconceived conclusions. That's usually the first mistake. Uh, I have a biases for, for Christianity. I have a biases for the Bible, and I measure everything against the Bible. But I am looking for things that are consistent and consistently tell the same story, as opposed to something that is really, really interesting. I don't have any basis for it in the Bible. It doesn't really change the end story. And so... I, get, I was criticized a lot in the first book by some uh, because I did that. But what I was trying to do was get people from all walks mm -hmm. of life to say, hey, there's a commonality here in the history and a commonality where it's going to end up. And I just want people to understand that this is something that is there for everybody to dig into. Decide what you want, but do make a choice. Mm. So with prophecy, is prophecy literal or is it sometimes just a warning? It's it's always literal, but it's also laced with allegory, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where it gets a little bit difficult. So defined as a prophet in the book, to be legitimized, to be in the Bible, is, is you have to do two, two prophecies, two sets of prophecies, one for the lifetime that you're in, Mm -hmm. that comes true, and you have to be right 100% of the time, or you're going to be called a false prophet. In the time of Israel, they would stone you for that. So the risk of going out there within the Israelite community would be, you better you better be legitimate, right? Or, or you're risking your life. And then you would have to do prophecies into the future. So, uh, And then that's why they would be kept. Uh, so that there can be a consistent sort of story for Christians throughout the history to say there are periods of time where you're not really going to see anything that's significant on prophecy being unfolded, but then there's these rapid set of events where prophecy takes place, and that such as the end time. So, I mean, you had a series of significant amount of prophecies being fulfilled in and around the time of Jesus and his crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem and the diaspora of the people, all part of prophecy. Mm -hmm. But then you have kind of this lull that we're still waiting for that last seven years as the 70 weeks of prophecy are laid out, 69 
special weeks that have been fulfilled. We're waiting for that last week, so that's why there, there's a gap. So the allegory that's in it can be mystifying, particularly if you're looking at Book of Revelations, um, the Book of Revelation singular. Um, so you have a bunch of stuff in there that people are very, very creative about in terms of what it might mean. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty abstract. So the thing you have to be careful of when you're doing that is now you're into the interpretive approach. <coughs> Everything that's in the book of Revelation is defined throughout the Bible. And you need one needs to sort of define that type of allegory as to what was talked about um, before in the Bible. And then you find some consistency. And yet, so there's a couple of things that happens with prophecy that gets people into a, a lot of trouble other than, as I mentioned earlier, specifying a specific date that's just you just don't do that you, <laughs> unless unless you're actually truly a chosen prophet and I, you don't even see them for the most part with specific dates um, it just you, you shouldn't do that so but what they tend to do is is they tend to get away from the literal approach and they get into that interpretive approach and then you can twist it into a pretzel any way that you want to do it the other thing that they tend to do is they get ahead of uh, biblical chronology. They want to jump things forward because they saw something in a headline. Or they'll say uh, Biden's the, the, the Antichrist right. or Bush was. I mean, they just, because they're just, they're not really true students of, of the prophecy. Usually there's a motive there. But the biggest mistakes that people that make, though, is it begins with, leaving out inconvenient passages mm -hmm. and that anything that disagrees with your chronology or timeline, you just leave out and you can't do that. It's got to be a hundred percent true and it's got to be fitting like a glove or you need to go back and work a little bit harder at it. make, you know, find a way to say, how did I misunderstand that? And then back it up with other passages. The other thing they forget to do um, is in a split into two, things that you shouldn't do one is is they never put everything around what jesus said on prophecy let alone the rest of the book because it's all his word uh from as the word of god and so they will define what jesus said by what a prophet says and you don't do that the prophets are giving context to what jesus said mm -hmm. and you can't get it out of order otherwise you get it backwards. And the other thing they try and do is they try and apologize for what Jesus said and say, well, he didn't do things in chronological order or he didn't mean that. Um, and you just don't do that. He did give it in chronological order. And if you per put all the prophecy around what he said, it all fits like a glove. It's just, and including the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so then it's just a matter of dealing with that allegory within the Bible to understand what some of that allegory might be, like what is Babylon, what's the red dragon, things like that. Hmm. Are there any things that you and I have witnessed in our lifetime that is part of the prophecies, prophecy? Yeah, I think so, that we've witnessed, sure. Mm -hmm. um, from a biblical prophetic side, because um, you could make an argument for some of Nostr Nostradamus prophecies, but he's Rosicrucian, so polytheist. Um but from a essential ingredient for what Jesus talked about as the fig tree generation, one specific 
generation. That includes the last seven years. When all the events that he said would take place is that the people of Judea, the people that he was speaking to at the time when he was on the earth as opposed to the lost tribes, which will play a role in the end time as well, but that the people of the southern kingdom would be back in their land in the end time. But more importantly, almost all prophecy centers around the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So they had to be in control of the city of Jerusalem. And in end time prophecy, coming out of the Old Testament, you learn that there's a couple of allegories for Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, Israel being the vine of a garden or grapes, but as a vine, as a, as a spreading vine, and Judah as being the fig tree of the garden. So when Jesus, before he starts to head into the Jerusalem, or into the temple where he does some of his more famous deeds, and then thereafter does the uh, oration on the end time signs, takes a fruit from a fig tree, eats it, says that this tree is is basically barren of good fruit now, and it dies. So when he uses that term, it's in relation to the southern kingdom, that's in southern (coughs) Judah at that time, and then in as an overarching sign to his um, oration for the end times and the events is in in the fig tree generation, he says, when you see the fig tree bloom, and he's specifically talking about Judah in the end time as that fig tree and in possession of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is in all the end time prophecy. Hmm. Well, right now, like Jerusalem is like, <clears throat> sort of has Muslims, Christians, and Jews, right? All yep. three. Is that anywhere mentioned in there that it's going to be occupied by the three different opposing religions? Well, just it, it's it's referred to as the Gentiles or Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So the Gentiles are all of those, and so from the time of the destruction of the city, it's going to be sort of trampled, uh, and then there's a, a a very specific trampling of Jerusalem in the last three and a half years when Antichrist takes power of of the Gentiles, so that they'll and that type of trampling is sort of declaring that as the city of the of the antichrist universal religion of the end time and that's when he does the abomination is crowned as god in the temple at the midpoint of the last 7 years so does it talk specifically about uh the muslims uh having a peace or the christians having a peace and the, no it does not talk about that um but what's interesting what it talks about though is this idea that as one of the signs to the beginning of the last seven years, which is negotiated in, in, in Daniel 9.27 by who will become Antichrist, who plays a, a larger role in this, uh, sponsored by Babylon and, and, and permits the formation of the Ten King End Time Empire for the first three and a half years, there is a permitting of the southern kingdom, Judah, to to begin their sacrifices again on a wing of the temple, or as some of the translations would be, overspreading, or an extension of the temple. Well, that's one of the huge stumbling blocks, right? Because how, how do you imagine that happening? The, the, the Muslims are never going to permit that, unless something significant changes. Uh, yet, this is part of the prophecy. So anybody who gets ahead of that... I mean, 
let alone um, what it's going to take to bring that about. And also, before I get into that, when we talk about a generation, biblically, that's defined. We're just not sure which one it's pointing at. So in the book of Exodus, it says a generation is 40 years. In the book of Psalms, mm-hmm. it says it's 70 years. And in Genesis 6-3, life for a generation is limited to 120 years. So if you're using 1967 or 1947 as the declaration of the Israeli state, or 1967 when they take Jerusalem, if you're at 40 years, if you put your claim on that generation, mm-hmm. then um, you're already outdated. Um, so is it 70 years or is it 120 years? We don't know. And it's assuming that in my case, and I think we might be in that fig tree generation, that what kicks that off is Judah having Jerusalem. If that's wrong, then everything's wrong, right? So it sort of rolls off of that. But it's going to take something so significant that most people find it the largest stumbling block to believe that the end-time prophecy could be fulfilled of the sacrificing of the temple. And so the only thing that's going to take that, uh, overrule that, is a, a usurping of the religions. It has to change everybody or almost everybody's preconceived thoughts on the earth to happen. And so this Babel, Babylon, polytheist religion is going to have to come to power using things that changes everybody's preconceived thoughts. And typically that would be understood as the false prophets uh, that will be coming. And they will predict things that will... Uh, be a warning to the world. Convert to the true religion, or we're going to be wiped from the face of the earth. Whether it's a nuclear disaster, pestilence, asteroids, whatever. It's almost like we're being prepared <laughs> for that type of uh, secular apocalypse right now that the polytheists will bring back the secular group into its in <clears throat> base uh, at the right time. Uh, so it's going to take those prophets, those false prophets and those prophecies to bring back this Babel religion. And Babylon is rooted in Babel, where Nimrod was, where you have an archetypical Antichrist figure sway over the, all the people and this universal polytheist religion that he imposed on them. And it's the religion that was the religion before the flood that I, that I call Enochian mysticism as the Gnostics sort of take that back to him founding that uh, initial religion. And so this is going to be the same religion that's going to come about that was part of the Antediluvian Epoch before the Flood, what was at Babel, until that was uh, dealt with with the confusion of the languages. That was part of all the beast empires, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the coming Roman Empire is going to be back as part of that hierarchy. So it's going to take significant disasters that they're going to predict and that's going to have to be you know apocalyptic type of events to scare people into converting once they have that power and then they bring all back in as sort of branch religions and sort of redefine some of the important things to make it fit now you have that control over the Muslim group, you have that control over the Christian group, you have that control over the Judean group, and you can now do that because you've brought them all home to what they believe as the true religion that went rogue at the time of Moses. 
which mm-hmm. cuts all three monotheist religions off at the same time. Wow. I wonder what type of disaster it would take. I wonder if we're like living through that now, maybe, with the climate change or stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, could, it could be. I'm not convinced that climate change is uh, part of that. I mm-hmm. don't, in terms of how it's presented, um, I, I just don't, I don't see the science there uh, that they can back that up. Now, does that mean things aren't changing? Perhaps I'd probably do it more from a scientific per, uh, perspective about all of the pollution, not just something that's essential for life. I mean, why make a war on the uh, table of elements? Makes no sense. Right. <laughs> just, <laughs> but if you know, if you look at the stuff that gets put in the air, it's more than just carbon. I mean, they're just absolutely ignoring all the other stuff that's really doing the damage. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you go back before. The, uh, the theorized asteroid, and I'm not saying there wasn't an asteroid that caused the last ice age, but whatever caused it, um, they've got archaeology that says the temperature was way warmer. So you have this outside mm-hmm. thing coming in that completely changes our climate that we're just getting back. And the ice has been melting since the last ice age back to its former self, and somehow that's apocalyptic. It just right. makes no sense to me because if the world is as, as old as they claim, and I think it is an old world, um, then it wasn't apocalyptic when they had this stuff growing in the Arctic, right? It just mm-hmm. makes makes no sort of logical sense. But we see things changing, and so you need a cover story. You need to get people distracted as to what the root cause is, but we'll deal with some of the fallout with our with our story. So I think you're going to have those apocalyptic type of changes come in, but when we see the false prophets making their profits, they're going to be a lot more specific to be believable. Hmm. So that they're, they're going to say there's going to be this nuclear holocaust, and it's going to be in a certain part of our world. There's going to be these monster earthquakes that will happen, and it'll all be, I think, contrived. Uh, my conclusion, my speculation is that they can, they'll be able to make those predictions because they're the ones who are causing it, uh, just as the wars are caused. So when you look at the, the, the sorrows that are involved that will get stronger throughout the fig tree generation, we're told there's four, uh, biblically. One is earthquakes. And earthquakes are getting stronger. We don't know what we're doing in the earth to cause that. We're probably causing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is uh, pestilence. We've seen one of those that are going to get stronger. The third thing is famine. And we're going to see that, that because it comes along with disasters. And then the fourth is wars and rumors of wars. And we're starting to see that heat up. But they all have to start working together. Um, and that these catastrophes will have have to make available the ability for these false prophets to come forward for the religion, and that the world will accept the new globalist world order run by ten groups of kings mm-hmm. who don't necessarily get along. So you might imagine, you know, Canada, the U.S., Mexico, maybe Britain, maybe, I mean, the Club of Rome has the world split up into ten, the UN has the world split up into ten. We don't know how those groups of nations or trading blocks might form, but there will end up being ten. And so, I think we need those catastrophes and wars to make that environment available. And I think we need to see that being caused by the rise of the old empires. 
And so when you see the rise of Putin that's trying to rebuild the old Tsarian, uh, Scythian, Kievan um, empire, uh, you see the Shah dynasty with Z as being a descendant of that now starting to flex his muscles and wanting to increase his uh, empire. They're trying to reform these empires of old, and they don't want to be dominated by the Europeans and their imposed New World Order. So they're not against the New World Order. Mm -hmm. They just want a larger one. So you can expect to see India, who is uh, supporting Russia significantly and buying more and more of their resources from them, they're going to be going with China and Russia in that new unlimited partnership that they're imagining. You're probably going to end up seeing, my speculation, five of those empires on one uh, foot and then five of those toes on another foot. And that analogy comes from Daniel 2.10 with the statue of empires that ends up with the ten kings, which are the ten uh, kings of the seventh empire of the end time. And they don't get along in, the, in that prophecy. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see this sort of unholy alliance, probably out of need, uh, and, and being afraid of destroying ourselves from the face of the earth. And it's the religion that's going to be the glue that brings that about and negotiates that covenant that brings about those ten kings. And that will permit not only the power, but the religious base to permit the Jewish people to begin their sacrifices on a wing of the temple in Jerusalem. Wow. So where does the secret society tie into all this? Well, the secret societies are kind of the tactical arms of things, of the, of the bloodlines. So, and I, and I write about something, I don't know whether I've talked about this in other shows, there's a hierarchy to the secret societies, and at the top are bloodline families. So mm -hmm. 13 Western families would be at the top of the Western organization, and you might have as many as, from what I understand, I can't, uh, verify this, but I've been told there's 13 other bloodlines around the world. Could be four or five being represented out, out of Europe and that greater 13. But the ones that most people talk about in the U.S. are the 13 bloodlines of the West, and it's not the pseudo blue bloods of the American bloodlines. They're the original bloodlines of the um, royalty out of, out of Europe. And so in that philemic tree, uh, as they like to call it, you can imagine that as a evergreen tree or a cedar tree of uh, Mount Hermon. Um, you have these trunk organizations, and into those trunk organizations, you have these branches that go all around. Mm -hmm. If you try and use a pyramid, you just can't capture the hierarchy. Uh, you might be able to do that within an organization specifically, but not multiple organizations, especially when they're all sort of intersecting. So you have the Freemasons at the bottom and you have and you have to be invited to be a Freemason. So they're looking for lower level bloodlines or people maybe with new money that they want to intermarry into the bloodlines down the road. You have to be invited and you become first level adept in the Freemasonry bottom trunk organization. They'll oversee you know, organizations that say like the Lions Club and other initiatory type of organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but that's still the entry level, and they're going to be responsible for uh, politics 
and the Army. That's generally what they're involved at at the adept level of Freemasonry. Above that is the Illuminati. They've got organizations. I won't spend an hour going through all of this. I'll just give the basics here. Above that is the Rosicrucians, and 50% of the Rosicrucians are purebloods at the top. So the Rosicrucians are sort of that intersectory trunk organization, and they oversee the bottom two ones and then all the ones that are flowing into them. And above them is the Committee of 300, and these are 300 families. Uh, and they control, this is a very, very important group. That people really like the Illuminati and Freemasonry and the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucians are a little bit more important because they have the history and the genealogies and they control the entertainment and the religious aspect of it. But it's the Committee of 300, which is the group that manages the IMF. It, imagine, it, it manages the World Bank. It uh, manages the World Trade Organization. It oversees and manages the Club of Rome. It oversees the Bilderberg one. It oversees the Davos group. So that when you now start to see the G20 and the B20 meeting together like they did in October, that represents uh, 85 to 90 percent, depending on which group I'm going to name here, of the world's trade and the world's GDP. Wow. And they want a complete reset, and they want a globalist order, and people should really ought to pay attention what they're working on. And they report up the ladder to the Council of 33 families, and then up the ladder to the 13 families. And all of those are royal bloodlines from the top half of the Rosicrucians and up. And then they have mm -hmm. their own Masonic orders, ancient Masonic bloodline orders like uh, the Knights of the Seraphim or the, uh, <clears throat> the the Order of the Golden Fleece. So the Order of the Golden Fleece would be the Habsburg, Bourbon family, uh, bloodline Masonic organizations. Knights of the Seraphim would be the Norse bloodlines and so on and so forth. So they have a whole hierarchy within that within the families that also branch into that uh, trunk organization. And the Thelemic Tree is uh, an ideology that has is like the world tree. And in mm -hmm. this case, it's the evergreen tree. But their genealogical tree, where they track the bloodlines of everybody, mundane or not, mundane or royal, that's like an elm tree, right? That's this big branchy one. That's also a Thelemic Tree, but it's a, the two most... Uh, Venerated trees in um, the occult is the evergreen cedar tree and the uh, elm tree, some, and you'll see versions of oak and um, ash as well in there, but mm -hmm. it's essentially elms, the, the main one, and they use it for different allegories in terms of, of what the Thelemic tree does. In terms of the power, it's the evergreen tree. In terms of the genealogies, it's the <coughs> elm tree. And it's also known as the world tree that joins heaven and earth. And in the occult, heaven isn't above, it's in Hades or Sheol, which mm -hmm. is below. And so the power is generated through the roots that come up through the tree and into the trunk and then into the branch organizations. And that's why they call it that, and that's why it's a better way of understanding their organizational structure. Otherwise, you just get really confused. So <laughs> people will say, "Well, where does the where?" I thought the Jesuits were the 
greatest one? Well, no, they were created and they were created after the Rosicrucians and they were created and sponsored by the secret societies. The Rosicrucians in particular sponsored them. And today they would answer into the Committee of 300 most likely um, through the black nobility aspect of the Italian black nobility families that's part of the larger European black nobility or Rex Deus and or into the 33 families. Um, there's a bit of debate as to which one, but they do enter back into that. And when you look at how some of those organizations spread out is when at the time of the creation of the, uh, let's say at the time of the D, uh, mat- dismantling of the Knights Templar in 1307, there was a Rosy Cross order uh, that had split away with the cutting of the elms. No coincidence there with that tree. It's mm-hmm. very important. Uh, they split away from the Knights Templar because they'd lost the city of Jerusalem, which was their main focus, the Templars. And so this was the higher senior order, and the Templar was the junior order. So after the fall of the Templars, 33 of these Rosicrucians that they called themselves the Invisible Ones were trying to reestablish that order within the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church initially agreed, but then said, we're going to do that, but with none of your people, we'll just do it with our people, and they walked away. And so you see the first rise of visible Rosy Cross in 1323 in Scotland, where many of the Knights Templar escaped to, and the sponsorship of the St. Clair family, St. Clair out of the Norse bloodlines, and um, Robert the Bruce, who was excommunicated by the Catholic Church at that time, and they start Freemasonry at that point in time, and then for the Adepts, they start the Rosy Cross Order, Um, and that's sort of the first visible sign. So after the fall of the Knights Templar, it's this higher order of starting with the 33 that would like to reinstate the Templars within the Church, and they finally do through Ignatius of Loyola in the 1500s through a fellow by the name of Francis Borgia, one of the Borgia black nobility of popes, who there's several popes, and he was the head of the Grand Master, he was Grand Master of the Montessa Order at that time, which is the order that was created at the fall of the Knights Templar in Spain to get a hold of all of the Templar assets. And he funds Ignatius of Loyola, then becomes a member, and by I think 1565 is when he takes over. He becomes the third Grand Master and gets control of that order and turns them into what they would call the New Templars within the Catholic Church. And then by 1570 to 1580, they get full control of the banking uh, of the of the Vatican, have controlled it ever since, and then they moved it to Switzerland. Another rabbit hole I won't go down right now. Wow. But the point of the matter is, is that you can see with that history where they would start to fit in. Mm-hmm. Top level, 33 at the highest. Um, more likely as they expanded their trunk order where they created the Committee of 300 Families below and then the Rosicrucians of uh, below that, it's going to be one of those two orders, but I think with that connection to the ancient Julia Gens of the black nobility, as opposed to the LB Gens of the greater um, European black nobility, um, they would have a uh, kind of a special place and probably into the Committee of 300, perhaps into the 33 council of 33 so long long answer but hopefully i, I, I brought some clarity to that <laughs> so these these orders are the 
you know, one of the things that we've talked about it too is that they are bloodlines of the giants, and that's where the giants yeah. come into it, yeah. right? Yeah. So, best example as I can explain to, for people on that is people can Google this. Um, just Google Prince, now King Charles, and his uh, thoughts on his genealogy going back to Vlad the Impaler. And that's important. So if you understand that they're tracking their genealogies, understand that they track their genealogies all the way back into prehistory, so they have these books of these elm trees of their genealogies that proves who they are and where they fit in terms of the purity of their bloodlines or the scion or ennobled grafted bloodlines into them from different patriarchs and angels. So the Windsors changed their name in 1914 or so mm -hmm. with World War One from Hanover because they're at war with Germany and the Hanovers replaced the Stuarts and they were a German bloodline that were brought in for the, uh, the kingship of, of England. And so it's through that sort of middle Europa Germanic Slavic type of bloodlines that were intermarrying that he takes his genealogies back to Vlad the Impaler. And there's two Vlad the Impalers that he could be referring to, but I think it's Vlad the Second from how he says that. But Vlad the First would be the same thing because they would have the same ge genealogical bloodline. That's the individual that Dracula was placed on. Mm -hmm. And he was um, your archetypical giant Tuatha Du Danan, Detanu, as they're called in the Ugaritic texts, uh, Raphaim, um, Horim in particular, because he had red hair as opposed to the blonde hair, which the Anakim would be more blonde haired as the Amorites were. Uh, but red hair, hazel eyes, pale skin, sensitivity to light, so he's a night operator. And uh, he was. Uh, you know, Dracula is where that character comes on, and Dra Dracul means dragon. Put the A on the end, it means son of a dragon, uh, which is all the imagery of the dragon, seraphim angels, and the and the genealogies that, that, that they, they produced with that serpentine look. And he took his genealogies, the Vlad family, back to the Scythians, which, again, are part of the four Indo-Aryan groups. Um, one would be the Covenant Land one, as an example, but you've got the Scythians that are another branch, you've got a dark-haired branch, and you've mm -hmm. got an eastern branch. So anyways, um, they take their genealogies back to uh, the tribe of the Az Azuri, Azuri, which is a tribe uh, produced as an offspring of Hercules, son of Zeus, after the flood, and back to a specific angel, Tamiel, um, that they would also, uh, if you understand angelology at all, they have several different names. Uh, Kazadia would be what some Christians might understand that name as, as he's listed in the book of Enoch. So anyway, sort of, again, long sort of story, but the point of the matter is, is they all track those genealogies, and that's why they tend to intermarry to keep those bloodlines as pure as possible, and only intermarry when they have to with lower level of purity stock. So um, you have uh, these genealogies that are very, very important because it's going to show where they fit in that whole hierarchy. Mm. So it's interesting because the way I'm visualizing this is there, there, there's us, the humans, 
with the secret societies. Then the secret societies are linked to the giants. And then I guess after that, the giants are linked to the angels. Yeah. So how are the giants linked to the angels? And so how, how did they, all the races get started? So, well, you, first of all, you have a flood, right? So right. you have to sort of acknowledge that. And you've got two groups of angels. You've got the ones before that create the giants, and they end up going to the abyss. And then you have either giants surviving the flood or a second creation, which I think is more accurate. So like Baal, for example, on Ashtaroth of the Ugaritic text, they produce mm-hmm. the Rapiu, which is the Semitic root word for Raphaim. And they're doing rituals to have them come back because they have a fertility issue after the flood versus the ones before the flood. So again, another, another distinction, which is why Raphaim is distinct from Nephilim, antediluvian, post-diluvian. But in both cases, they're both created by the gods as spurious offspring with a human female or a human male, as some polytheist accounts also will have. So female goddess, human male, or male god, human female, they create the demigods. They are given the divine right to rule and the authority as the visible ones on the earth. So biblically we're told there's the invisible ones and the visible ones that we're at war with. And they are carrying out the will of their godfathers, the right that they've been provided to rule in this world, and their role was to destroy humankind to make sure that we don't reach our destiny. Why? Why? Because the angels rebelled. The creation of the Adamites <coughs> is the resolution to the angelic rebellion. Mm-hmm. So they're so still resentful when, against us for having free will? They have free will, too. Okay. Uh, they were, the difference is, is they were created immortal, we were created mortal. They were given significant knowledge and intimate knowledge mm-hmm. of God, but they still had free will to rebel. And mm-hmm. up to a third of them, certainly by Revelation 12, a third of them will have fully have rebelled. I think they probably all rebelled at the beginning, but there could be more as, as they go. Um, and that uh, we were created as that resolution, and that with little knowledge and mostly faith, we have to make that free choice. And all the names, whether angelic or human, were written in a book of life from before creation. And that angelic or human has the ability to have that name blotted out or not through our free will and our free choice. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's playing out. Now, when humans were created, they, the, angel, the rebellious angels understood if they're going to be raised up like angels, they're going to be punished. And they rebelled in, in hopes of getting a realm of their own away from God. But it's not that simple. You either are on God's side or you're not. And so the only thing that they could do after the creation of humankind with the Adamites is to make sure that they don't reach their destiny. In other words, have them destroy themselves from the face of the earth with the help of the angels and or the creation of demigods, which were the giants, that they procreated with humankind and breaking the laws of creation and the laws of the Holy Spirit. And so the creation of the demigods was part of the revenge against humankind to have them destroyed from the face of the earth so that they wouldn't reach their destiny. And so by the time of Noah and the time of the ark, 
they've almost succeeded. They have turned the whole world into polytheists. They have corrupted the DNA. They have corrupted the complete genome of the whole world. The whole world was corrupt. The Hebrew word shakat. Uh, and violent, which is comes out of the extension of understanding the context of the giants. And the creation of the giants is the preamble to to the flood story. So that the only way you could have things continue is, is an intercession of God, and he's going to permit things to move on so that all of the peoples whose name is written in that book before creation has that opportunity to keep their name in or not. So those angels who committed the crimes before the flood, they go to the abyss. God knows as Alpha Omega everything that's going to happen. None of this is a surprise. He knows the giants are going to either save giants, some of their uh, other creation, or they're going to have them recreated. I think they're recreated because you don't see Baal or Anki or Osiris or Zeus, any of the offspring gods that supposedly killed their parents and took over, around for very long after the flood. They're there in all of the cultures early on, and then they just disappear. That's because they broke those same laws, and mm-hmm. they're in the same abyss prison. And so you have the creation of these giants after the flood to do the same thing. But there's a, there's a greater plan. And I think both the giants and the fallen angels know that there's going to be the Messiah coming. And they even have a pretty good idea how they might, that might be brought about because they know how God works, but they don't know everything God knows. Mm-hmm. So you have the, have, after the after the flood, you have Abraham selected out, and then he's going to have a son, Isaac, Jacob, who creates Israel, and then they're raised in Egypt. And through the Exodus, they take the land that God has gifted him. And through the tribe of Judah, there comes David, and down that genealogy comes Jesus, born by uh, Mary through the Holy Spirit by creating an oikotarian or a dwelling place for the Spirit for Jesus to to be born into the world. What happens next is really interesting, and all the way through, they're trying to make sure this Messiah isn't born. And so in the book of Corinthians, it says, if the princes are the arche, the archangels, the ones who rule this world as the invisible ones from the assembly of the gods on Mount Hermon, uh, over the 70 nations, um, they're trying to kill Jesus because they believe if you, you kill him in the physical world, he'll die. That's it. It's over. But what it says in the book of Corinthians is that they didn't understand the resurrection and didn't know that that was possible. And so with the resurrection, it seals the fate of the fallen angels and all the spurious offspring who chose poorly or and maybe even continue to choose poorly. So... What's also interesting is while Jesus is still in the grave, in the book of First Peter, he goes and talks to these spirits in the abyss prison. And basically, I think my speculation says to them, your rebellion's over when I rise on the Sunday. The resurrection will be made available to all who choose God and choose to keep their name in the book of life to be raised up like angels. And they will be judging you for the crimes against humanity in the future time. And so everything since then is just, how do we destroy as many as possible? Hmm. 
So what is the Book of Life? Where did that come from? We don't know. All we know <laughs> is it was created from before creation, from before angels were created. Hmm. So, but when you look at the definition of Jesus and God, it's the mm-hmm. Alpha Omega. So this is, you know, this is a different dimension than where heaven is in or where Hades or Sheol and the, and the abyss are located. And likely the lake of fire is in another location as well. It's, it's actually not helpful to have the translations of the Bible conflating uh, the abyss or the bottomless pit, Sheol, Hades, Otherworld, Anwin, whatever you want to call it, and um, the Lake of Fire. The abyss is in Sheol, but it's not all of Sheol. It's just mm-hmm. a prison that's in there. Sheol is the underworld. It is the is what the pantheon gods would say is their heaven. And then the Lake of Fire is something different and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there's always speculation. Or any of us can always speculate. Or maybe not. Um, once the Book of Revelations prophecy is completed, mm-hmm. <clears throat> does everything go back? Does everything become like a heavenly type of place in all dimensions, in all forms? Is everything just destroyed and it, is it gone? Or is a, or do we just move on to another book of life, a different version of it? It's, it's, it's a really good question, and there's a principle, not only, I think, in this world, uh, that nothing is new under the sun. What has been will be again. Now, we do get a new heavens and a new earth at the end of the millennium, mm-hmm. but what we're not told is, is what we'll be doing. And, of course, uh, Unless there's something that's done differently in what whatever other beings might be created, or maybe there won't be, mm-hmm. then there could be other rebellions down the road in different worlds. And we don't know whether or not there's going to be different worlds or not. I mean, all we know is, is there's a new heavens and a new earth. And that's it. And, we're, and all we know is we're going to be serving within the host of heaven. As a Christian, if, if, if you're going to be resurrected with the other immortal angels that were loyal. But again, we have no idea how many dimensions there might be or what happens in those other dimensions and right. those other worlds. And are there, it's going to be, is this just an ongoing thing? We don't know. Hmm. I mean, it makes sense to me that it would continue to exist and continue to play out but probably in different forms for the um, purpose of just evolving and learning well if there was evolution involved on that yes you would you would look at it that way one would think that um, you know the omnipotent would raise us up to being Mm -hmm. perfect right and we That'd would get nice. a new body. Uh, you know, one of the things that we get is a new body, uh, which is really unique because typically spirit beings dwell in the other dimensions. Um, but we're going to receive a body like Jesus that has an ability to go between dimensions, unlike uh, 
what happens today where a spirit wants to participate in this world, they have to take a physical form. They need mm-hmm. an oiketarian to participate physically, but typically uh, you can't, as a physical form, go into heaven. You can go in there in vision, but something needs to change for, for the, your physical body to go in there, and seemingly that's going to be the case. So that there will be, I guess, more fluent access between dimensions in the future, we're told there's going to be no more sin, no more tears, but what we don't know is, is that just restricted to us who will be deemed people to go into the future world um, and not necessarily the start of this cycle again in other worlds or universes. Mm-hmm. We and don't I, know that for and, sure. And I wonder like, if the beings that chose not to follow this path the ones that are already still in the um, abyss or whatever it is, yeah. are they going to be annihilated? Some are, some aren't. So in the in the resurrection, in the second resurrection, uh, as it's called, um, you have all the humans being resurrected and being judged. Mm-hmm. Some to everlasting life, some to the second death. So just gone. Uh, but there are humans and angels where the lake of fire is reserved. And some those humans that are reserved there, for, the ones that we know of are the ones who are going to take the mark of the beast. Uh, and what we do know is for the angels, it's all the ones that rebelled, that, as in uh, the book of uh, Matthew, the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels. And later in Revelations, those who take the mark of the beast and who worship Antichrist and who worship um, Satan. And they will burn forever. There's no second death there. Mm-hmm. That is an ongoing perpetual punishment. <coughs> and what's really interesting about that is that, you know, humans may have an excuse that they don't want to believe that you would get internal punishment. Mm-hmm. Angels knew this. And that's why you get that such an interesting term. And you can get that, work that back through biblically in the Bible. But the term in the book of Enoch is harem anathema. That's the curse of denunciation. And it's a curse to carry it out to the end, no matter what the consequences will be. They knew they were going to receive the full wrath of God that was eternal punishment for immortals um, for doing what they were going to do, but yet they were still committed to do it to try and win their realm. They thought for some reason there was still a chance. Hmm. Is it possible you think that God created them for the sole purpose of rebellion and to suffer? No, I think I think it's to prove uh, as a as an example for the future world, mm-hmm. that if you're created immortal and you have intimate knowledge with God and see all the things and understand the things that he has done, that you still have free choice and there will always be some that will rebel. Humans with little knowledge had to make that free choice, but there's a period where humans are going to show that we are no different than the angel. So in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, you get this reign where everything is utopia. But when Satan is released 
out of the abyss after a thousand years. He raises the Magog and Gog people up again to create war and rebellion, even after a thousand years of all of that rule. And what it's showing humans is, is that there's always going to be a percentage of people that are going to be just naturally too contrarian, will be wanting to do things differently, but the trouble is it always leads to violence and, and destruction. So what we're told, and one thinks that there might be something with the angelic loyal beings as well, is, is what we're going to be told is God will write his laws sort of allegorically into our hearts or into our being that will permit us to find the will and the way to do what is right. Hmm. Because as we are, angelic or human, we weren't able to do that. How much time do you, in your opinion, like I know you said the prophecies can't predict time and things like that. But do you think that we're maybe 100, 200 years away from this all playing out? Um, I think it's less than that, my speculation. Um, I do think Jerusalem might be the kickoff. So if you're looking at 70 years beyond that, you're into the 2030s mm -hmm. or the last seven years to start. Uh, but if it's 120 years from there, well, now you're talking, <laughs> you know, well beyond our lifetime. Yeah. So there's, and as I say, there's still so many things to be played out. Uh, to to be changed and established that it could take that amount of period of time. Mm -hmm. There's now, a lot to happen in our lifetime. There's a lot to happen, but catastrophes allow things to happen quickly. Mm -hmm. So the larger the catastrophe, just as the left likes to say and the globalists like to say, is never let a disaster get away without benefiting from it or taking advantage of it to, to right. move your agenda forward. Look for catastrophes as the route to cattle herd everybody into world government and the world religion, and then also look for them to be the ones who cause those catastrophes. And you can see how that kind of works. It'll just be on a greater scale. You have an example today where you have, uh, you know, Russia who is, uh, and uh, they're bad, bad players and they're wrong, but they were provoked. You know, our the president of the United States since 2010 was telling Putin they were going to take the Ukraine into NATO. Mm -hmm. Right? That's always been his red line. So when he got elected, what do you think of when you're Putin? Now, if you're tactical and you understand the Russians in, in uh, not only of today, but in the late Soviet period, they wouldn't do any wars unless oil prices were high. Because they need that to fund it. They're a petro currency. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the first thing that the fellow who was poking the bear in the eye with the Ukraine doing, the guy who's heavily invested with his son and money and all sorts of other things in, in the Ukraine, part of the regime that brought down the democracy in 2014 to install their own puppet government, um, at least that's the speculation based on a CIA coup that thought that took place there. Putin's looking at this, but what's the first thing that 
President Biden does when he comes into power. He says, I'm shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go from an exporting nation to an importing nation and and cause a shortage. And oil prices balloon to fund the war. And then he spends his first six to nine months saying, I'm going to, if you dare to attack the Ukraine, I'm going to give you all sorts of these horrible sanctions that were never horrible sanctions, and they never stopped them. In fact, their economy is doing better than ours is. <laughs> and uh, and their GDP, you know, it's growing, and, you know, they're, they're doing, you know, it's costing a lot of money, but they can afford to do it with the petrodollar. So it's almost like he caused that war for this perpetual war of the globalists because they need that as catastrophes and mm -hmm. to get larger to create that area where they can provide solutions. They won't even talk a peace treaty. Right. And and again, I am not siding on Russia. All I'm looking at is I mm -hmm. see two bad actors on both sides <clears throat> and they're cattle herding us into the same location. And as I said earlier, Putin and Xi... It's not that they don't want this new world order. They just want a bigger role, and mm. they don't want it in the model that the Europeans are um, have imagined and are using their attack dog, the U.S., to enforce. That's true. I mean, this could have all been over in a matter of days if everybody yeah. kept their hands out of it. Yeah, either win the war or lose the war. This perpetual but they make a lot of money idea. by money and the manipulation by keeping it going because they, well, they make fear. the money on everything they're behind, mm -hmm. and so it's also one of the reasons why I, you know, try and communicate to to people in my interviews is that the establishment of the Republican Party is globalist too, mm -hmm. and they support the same things as the as the progressives do, <laughs> which is perpetual war, the green movement because they make significant amount of money on that mm -hmm. they made money on world uh trade through uh making money off of where they were able to invest their money how they were able to import things cheaply how they can move their money around everything follow the money and the power and you start to see who's actually in what lane right. in terms of what side that they're on so when you see things like Republicans uh, in a leadership role who are condemning the videos coming out on Tucker Carlson on January 6th, they're in the same camp as the Democratic mm -hmm. leadership because that's the establishment group of the Republicans. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've always said this, is that the Republicans and the Democrats, are like it's like pro-wrestling. They come out in the ring they pretend to be enemies and fighting each other and want yeah. each people to root for them. But when they go back in the locker room, they're all best friends patting each other on the back for putting on a good show. Yeah, so unless we're prepared to get in there and control it, I, I do think there's a movement, at least on the Republican side, to take down the establishment ones, but who knows when that might get usurped. But I think the classic, most obvious control example that we've seen in our lifetime was the 2000 presidential election between Gore and Bush. Mm -hmm. Both were Yale. Yeah. Both are secret society. Both mm -hmm. were skull and bones. And, 
And that's what we were offered. And both had essentially the same policy. One was <laughs> a compassionate socialist and one was a compassionate conservative. But right. they had the same globalist policies. They may have the same, a little bit different tactic in terms of how they were going to bring that about. But they were the same coin. <coughs> yeah, yeah, it's not much of a choice to give to give us a choice to the two same people, essentially in different yeah. bodies. So anytime you have people who challenge that status quo, they're going to mm-hmm. be destroyed. Think what you will of Trump, whether or not he was just doing the same globalist agenda for his own mm-hmm. narcissistic purposes or not. What he did do is he challenged the status quo and the European status quo and all of Europe and most every organization and company um, in the U.S. and in Canada and in Australia and all the connected nations rose up against Trump. It was absolutely astonishing to watch. Mm-hmm. But what he showed us, like him or not, is how that looks underneath the scab and how totally corrupted and infected that is and how difficult it will be to push that out because they control everything mm-hmm. you know from the internet to the corporations people think corporations are free enterprise they're not it's a perversion of free enterprise and it's designed to be controlled by oligarchs mm-hmm. who are always left-wing in nature it's just part of national socialism, this time on a globalist scale. Hmm. Fascinating. We covered so much on this episode. <laughs> I love having <laughs> you on. <laughs> I learn something new every time. Yeah. Um, Which is, But it's all why people need to open their eyes mm-hmm. and dig into things and then make your decisions. Don't be fed the preparation and the brainwashing because... They're trying to dull your senses, your senses, and you need to ask hard, critical questions like, who does this benefit? How does the money flow? Where does the power coming from to do this? What are they trying to achieve? And you very quickly, when you start getting to that point, is saying, I don't really believe anything the mainstream says. I might believe some of the things that the non-mainstream believe is saying, but I'm going to verify everything they say, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So before we wrap this up, <clears throat> excuse me, I have started this damn cold. Um, where's the best place for everybody to find you and find your books? The best place to get a hold of me is through my website, which is the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. That'll be the uh, website that I will also market my new book through as well. So mm-hmm. you can get the current book off of that website. Uh, and uh, if you go to the Buy Now page, you can get a signed copy from me. If you're in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. If you're in Canada, there's a Canadian page. If you're anywhere else in the world, there's an overseas page. You can also click over from the Buy Now page to the Kindle edition and get that um, from Amazon, or you can also link and click on the Amazon.com icon, BarnesandNoble.com, and Amazon.ca, again, if you wanted to purchase the book from there. So that's the easiest way to get a hold of my book, although it's available on most online bookstores and it's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania, and you could order it through your local bookstore if you wanted to support your local bookstore. And if you wanted to get a hold of me, you can go to the media page and where it says Contact Gary Wayne, that's highlighted, 
for an interview. That's my email address, which is genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. And it'll come right through to me. It might take me six weeks or so to get back to you, but I will get back to you. All right. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to your website in the notes of this episode. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you. And hang on for a moment. I'm going to play the outro, but I have an idea for another episode. Sure. <laughs> <HD> more done. <laughs> Thanks for being on.